Uh, hey everyone, sorry. Uh, uh, sorry, I actually I, I told all the speakers actually uh, uh, twelve fifty five uh, in their DMs. I realized, but I had put the uh, invite for uh, twelve fifty. So that's my apologies there. Um, but I want to welcome everyone uh, to our uh, FOMC space. Uh, for those unaware, the bank failures have kind of stopped maybe uh, since uh, March and April. We've had a cooler CPI, a cooler PPI, and many will say an even cooler bull market. Um, this is an incredibly important Twitter space for us at Unusual Whales uh, because it's our 24th Twitter space, but our one-year anniversary of doing these uh, to the day, one year. So thanks for everyone who's listening and those who have supported us. Uh, uh, so you know, with that, I want to just welcome everyone for starting their afternoon with us and I'm Unusual Wales and I'm happy to have Nicholas help lead the conversation. Uh, Nicholas, if you can. How is it going everybody? I'm dealing with some audio issues on my side, but we should be able to keep things rolling per usual here. So I'm excited as always to have these great macro speakers here with us. As those who frequent our spaces know, I like to keep these panels very open for discussion. So as we kind of go along here, everybody on the panel, please feel free to discuss openly, add your thoughts to any given topic. The only request I have is that we stay muted when others are talking and use that good old-fashioned hand-raise emoji right here on Twitter. Uh, so without further ado, let's get through our panelists here. First up, we've got Joseph Wang. We always... Are happy to welcome back Joseph, our go-to Fed guy. He headed the trading at the Fed's open desk, has a great introductory book on central banking called Central Banking 101. He's the CIO at Monetary Macro and just launched a ton of macro courses. How are you doing, Joseph? I'm doing well. It's great to be here. Congratulations on the anniversary of your spaces. These are definitely my favorite spaces. Hey, I appreciate that. I can't believe it's been that long already. <laughs> All right, next we've got Jem Carson. Jem, a leading volatility expert and can explain the ins and outs of Charm, Vanna, and how options change the market. He's the founder of Kai Volatility, which you should all be subscribed to immediately. Check out his speaking on YouTube and Spotify as well. Welcome, Jem. Hey, guys. Always good to be here. Uh, starting to get uh, pretty interesting here. Uh, I think this is a, a pretty important day. Uh, wonderful to be on here with everybody. Wonderful to have you as always, Jem. Thank you. Next, we've got the last bear standing, another friend of our spaces. Last bear is an expert on markets where he writes about monetary policy in his weekly Substack. If you're not subscribed to that, go do that. Since, as we've said before, he can't share it as actively on Twitter as he used to for reasons. Welcome back, last bear. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me again. Looking forward to this spaces. Just to repeat what uh, what Joe said. These are definitely my favorite spaces to be a part of. It's been great to be um, an active member of the panel for the past uh, year. Um, I definitely get a lot out of it, um, probably more than I put into it. So it's, it's great for me. I'm looking forward to it um, and looking forward to the discussion. I'm looking forward to this one as well. Thank you so much for coming, Last Bear, as always. Up next, we've got Bob Elliott. Bob is the CIO at Unlimited Fund, former IC at Bridgewater, and the all-time leader in useful Twitter threads during a banking crisis. He's a friend of these spaces as well, so let's give him a warm welcome. How are you doing, Bob? Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, really appreciate it. 
I appreciate you have being here as always, Bob. Thank you. So as I said, everybody, we've got a really great panel of experts here. But before we get into it, let's take just a quick moment to go over some things that have happened since our last panel. The Labor Department reported an unemployment increase to 3.7% versus a 3.5% expected. Payrolls increased by 339,000 versus the 190,000 estimate. CPI, which was just released this week here, came in at 4% versus 4.1% expected. And PPI came in at 1.1% versus the forecasted 1.5%. A debt ceiling agreement was finally reached, avoiding a historical default. And markets have enjoyed a massive rally alongside of VIX at pre-COVID lows, entering officially into, many say, a full-fledged new bull market. Now, first off, as we kind of move through here, many have claimed market participants were misjudging the supposed recession that we were meant to experience. With now only 10% off all-time highs for SPY, I'd like to get the panel's thoughts on predictions of the market, not on predictions of the market going forward, but rather some understanding on how we got here. So, Jem, I'd love for you to start us off with a breakdown for those wondering, how did markets get here? Is this a hatred rally? Is this a newfound AI rally? Do markets just not care about rates and only care about future rate falls? Please elaborate if you can, Jem. Yeah, so, uh, so all uh, itself has become very compressed there's a cycle here that happens right especially once short interest uh, builds uh you get to kind of a, a a local bottom um you know at some point uh the the amount of hedging uh, leads to, to feedback on the positive side short interest kind of uh squeezes and vol gets more and more compressed and this cycle once it gets started is, is self is reflexive um, this has been going on now for some time, and we've reached a very, very compressed level of, of, of vol at the center of this complex, which is the S&P 500, right? And this has been going on now for a couple months. Um, at the same time, call speculation is starting to ramp up in certain areas of the market, right? Um, and when that starts to happen, you can get violent rotations. There's an imbalance underneath the surface. Um, and it can lead to um, a real squeeze of, of any short interest or under in investment in the market. Uh, and that's what we've been waiting for to see. We see we've had a very macro flows versus, uh, sorry, macro versus flows market now for some time that I've been talking about. The key to ending that and, and for dominant macro flows to kind of eventually take over is for the, uh, the this positioning to really get forced and squeezed out uh, we've been talking about this for several months it hasn't hadn't happened yet we've been looking for it here it is um this is what you've been kind of looking for yes what does it do it changes the narrative it changes the positioning we're seeing all of those things happen uh, across all kinds of sentiment indicators all kinds of positioning indicators um the great thing about that is you know this, this speeds up, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's great depending on what side of the, the position you are, but, uh, or you'd like to be, but, but it speeds up things becoming much more in line with fundamentals, with becoming much more in line with the, the fundamental flows that we're seeing. Um, and it's not a coincidence here that it's happening right into a big quarterly OPEX, June OPEX, 
um, right into some kind of big uh, macro kind of signals right up against some very important levels. Um, all of these things tend to align here, um, you know, um, when, when, these, when these squeezes happen. Um, the June OPEX here has, has had a ton of open interest. SKU has gone significantly higher in the last month, which only feeds those Vaughn and Charm flows I've been talking about. So this has not been a, the squeeze is not a surprise. It's the thing we've been looking for. Um, the key is to be watchful and ready for when these things happen. And I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, I definitely want to deep dive that a little later as well. Um, so you made a lot of really good points that I wanted to touch on during this space. So I will double back on some of those comments, Jim. But for now, Joseph, I remember when the banking crisis was happening, you tweeted confidently that it seems overblown, quote unquote, buying here. How are you feeling now, Joseph, with the markets rallying confidently since then, especially in tech and what's going on with the market as a whole? Yeah, so when I when I saw the banking crisis back then and how the market was reacting, it definitely felt to me that it was a strong overreaction. So I studied the financial system. And so based on my understanding, it, it was very much not a systemic crisis. And the overall banking system is actually fine. So I, I did uh, fade that. Totally did not anticipate the amount of craziness we see in tech. Uh, that, that I'll have to leave to people like Jim to explain to me. Um, but so going forward, I, I don't actually ex expect uh, the banking thing to to be something that 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 is recurring. I think it's it's something that was indeed localized. And um, if you were betting on some kind of view formed by that becoming more severe, I, I think that that would be a mistake. Thank you, Joseph. And we'll definitely be diving again into some bank discussion later on as well. But again, just getting some of these preliminary thoughts. So as a little bit more backdrop before my next question, which I'll be starting with Bob on, given recent data, some are saying that inflation is cooling off somewhat rapidly. Some, keyword some. Many C May CPI came in at 4% versus that 4.1% expected, as we said earlier, compared to 4.9 in April. This marks the slowest pace in the last two years. Core inflation, though, has stuck right around that 5% mark at 5.33% compared to 5.52% the previous month. Now, Bob, you recently had a string of tweets discussing this, stating, cut through the noise. Core inflation has been stable at 5% annualized. This is too high. Now, Bob, can you break that down a bit for us? What does this sticky core inflation say about the success of the Fed's mandate? Is inflation cooling off, you know, as quickly as some seem to believe and given the current supposed bull market? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, cut through the noise uh, also means don't don't feel like you have to break down inflation into all the nooks and crannies and the XXXs. Right. There's sort of a proliferation of, well, if I take X this and I take X that and X this other thing, then that's going to lead me to a situation where I can start to explain that uh, that, you know, inflation is coming down. And I think the important thing in this dynamic and I'll, I'll put this thread in the in the in in, in the in, I'll, I'll post it, which is the problem we have is nominal income is growing too fast relative to the productive capacity growth of the economy. And so what ends up happening is that nominal spending is outpacing 
uh, productive output growth, which is creating a gap that has to be basically met by changes in prices. And so you can get sucked into looking at this particular good or that particular good or that particular good. But in aggregate, what's happening is the spending is too high relative to the to the output. And so what ends up happening is the anytime, say, a particular area, maybe the prices are going down in one thing like airline tickets, but that nominal spending is popping out in another place like, I don't know, used car prices. Because the overall issue is not an issue of supply chain problems anymore. It's an issue of that nominal that nominal spending, which is creating that persistent inflation. And so I think a lot of people are getting sucked into the particulars, thinking that that's going to give them insight into how this is going to play out in the future, when what's going to determine how inflation plays out is how is nominal income playing out. And that remains too high relative to what is uh, what what needs to happen in order for the Fed to meet its mandate. And so that's really what I'm focused on when I say cut through the noise is just focus on the mechanics of driving the inflation and focus a little less on the nuances of this set of goods and that set of goods. Thank you, Bob. And, and real quick to all of our panelists here, I forgot to mention this at the beginning. If there's anything you're discussing or any tweets that you've put out recently that are that are topical or you feel are important to know, please feel free to share them to the space. All you have to do is click the share button on your tweet and select the space and it'll pin it right to the top so people can have a little bit of context. Uh, so feel free to do that. I'll do that as I can. But uh, if there's anything you feel is crucial to the conversation, please, by all means, share that to the space. So kind of moving along here, and then I'll kind of break it down into some panel-wide questions. Last bear, I remember your incredible post in March of 22 where you wrote, we are at the start of a bear market. The markets then fell to the second worst market next to the 1930s. What are you looking at now, like Jem is saying, potential fundamental flows? Are we officially in a bull market, or is this a, just a rally of temporary reprieve before more pain to come? Last bear? So I don't really love the the terminology of of bear and bull markets being strictly defined by some percentage change just because it's somewhat arbitrary. But I do think that the action that we've seen in stocks over the past um, six months or so, or let's say 2023 as as a year, does reflect what I consider to be um, an acceleration in in economic activity across a number of fronts. Um, I, I would I would sort of characterize last year as uh, slowing growth throughout, particularly the second half of the year, as rate hikes started to impact things like, um, you know, housing, construction, and demand, and mortgage rates, um, as well as other parts of the economy. Um, but really, what we've seen in this calendar year, um, starting with January, when we had a massive increase in um, in personal income in, in January, like a two point two percent month over month increase, as a huge amount of, I guess. Um, sort of wage increases through the private sector started to hit in the new calendar year. Um, that and, and at the same time, sort of easing of financial conditions, um, particularly in the in the longer end of the curve, um, even as the Fed has continued to hike rates, financial conditions have eased from the the latter part of last year. Um, the employment situation 
um, has seems to start it to, to roll over back towards um, actually improving as opposed to deteriorating, if you look at the most recent data. And so across the board, even housing prices you see have, have been ticking up um, from, from the low point. So there has been, I think, real acceleration in the economy in the past six months or so. And I think that that's somewhat reflected uh, both in, in the sort of enthusiasm for stocks, um, both based on a fundamental perspective, but also from a perspective of um, people feeling good about their finances and having money to spend and, and putting money to work in the stock market. So I don't think it's totally, you know, a, a sentiment that that's not connected to reality. I think that what we've seen is that the Fed hikes, um, you know, that financial conditions haven't sort of tightened along with the most recent Fed heights, um, hikes, and they sort of peaked at the, the, at the end of last year. And so um, I, th- I think that there is actually basis for um, the acceleration that we've seen in stocks. Thank you, Les Bear. Now, before I move on to the next topic, does anybody have any comments on anything anyone said so far? Any disagreements, any agreements at all? I think the only thing that, that I'll add here uh, is I do think the difference between um, core and non-core matters. I do think uh, that, you know, the secular versus cyclical inflation theme that we've been trying to kind of communicate uh, for, for many months now is, you know, that, that is connected to that, right? The, you know, in, in the seventies, and again, we've, we've kind of talked about that ad nauseum, but, uh, you know, we did see significant cyclical downturns in inflation throughout the 68 to 82 period. Um, you know, the initial decline in the first recession in the, uh, late sixties, early seventies was, um, was significant. It was from six and a half down to two and a half percent, um, uh, you know, before the Fed pivoted and, uh, and eventually, you know, inflation uh, pushed to 11. And, and you know, you, this is not going to be a, a straight line, but I, what, what's important are the structural elements that are keeping, um, you know, the, the core uh, secular inflation um, high. I mean, if you look at a chart of core inflation versus uh, of the total, you know, what you see is, is core really leveling off at 5% and, and staying steady. Um, and that's reason for concern. And the Fed's been pushing against that for some time now, but they've been in a bit of a box because of this, um, not only the, originally the banking issue uh, that came across, but then you had the, this, you know, the debt ceiling conversation and now the, the refilling of, of the TGA. And so not surprising, they've determined as a group to take a pause and see, but there's no way they're sitting feeling comfortable with the kind of speculation they're seeing in AI and the movement they're seeing in markets. Um, and so if you think we're going into a Fed meeting where, you know, they're not going to try and talk this down, I, I, I'd, be, I'd be shocked. Uh, they, they can't be happy about what they're seeing here in markets um, uh, and, and, uh, and core inflation at its core, I think the pause that we saw was really more of a function of, um, you know, the, the the bank walk or whatever, the bank run that we saw uh, paired with with uh, the timing on debt ceiling and, and the uncertainty um, and really filling the TGA. So um, I think, you know, the Fed will be re-entering the fray here and, and probably doing it relatively aggressively uh, uh, soon. 
Bob, I see you have your hand up. Any other comments there on what Jem said? Is the Fed comfortable or happy with the moves in what AI is doing, as Jem just mentioned a bit? Or as uh, Larry Fink just said, does AI solve inflation? Uh, well, I don't think, I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm aligned with what I'm saying. I, I think actually, um, I think we're at an interesting point, and I wanted to kind of circle back to some of the things actually he was highlighting at the, uh, at the outset, because I think it's, a, it's, just uh, the description of what's going on in the markets right now and over the last, I don't know, six weeks since the last time we got together and chatted. I think it's re- very interesting to hear sort of from from his perspective, uh, the, um, the, the technical workings of the market and how that has driven us to where we are today. I think, you know, I'm looking at this uh, dynamic from a macro lens. And from that perspective, I think what we're seeing in a lot of ways, driving this market action is an increasing recognition of higher for longer, but an important type of higher for longer. Uh, maybe this is a nuance in that whole picture, which is a higher for longer where the Fed remains one or two steps behind. And that's really important because in that circumstance, you have a situation where stocks can outperform. Stocks can continue to benefit from the elevated nominal growth more so than the drag from the tightening of monetary policy. But for bonds, it's a really terrible environment. Higher for longer with the Fed one or two steps behind is terrible for bonds, pretty good for stocks. And that's really, like if you look at the market action over the course of the last six weeks or so, give or take, that's basically what we've seen. Now, you know, will that continue? I think part of what, you know, the trade was better 15% ago, that diff trade was better 15% ago. Um, but I think, you know, an important part of what I'm looking for today is to try and understand, is the Fed's positioning really going to continue to be one or two steps behind, or are we going to tilt back to what we were seeing in 22, in the summer of 22, where the Fed was trying to, trying to move fast and the tightening was more significant and, and blowing out risk premiums across both stocks and bonds and all asset classes. Thank you, Bob. I see your hand there, Joseph. Uh, would love your thoughts here as well, this, especially on that, does AI solve inflation idea? Uh, so I'll just follow up on a few points noted by the speakers so far. So I like Jim's note that this looks like to be a structural inflation, there's structural and cyclical. And also looking back to what happened in the 1970s, back then inflation was global. So when we focus solely on our experience in the US, I think it's helpful to note that this problem of, of persistently high inflation is something that's shared across the Western world. So there are bigger forces at play than what we see in the U.S. So if you look at what's happening in Australia and Canada, well, they all restarted their hikes last week. The Bank of Canada actually paused in January. You know, Governor Macklem over there basically gave a you know mission complete uh, speech. And then last week, he's like, actually, I'm going to hike again and maybe I'll hike some more. And if you look across the pond to the UK, they're having some very serious troubles getting inflation under control as well. So there just seem to be these broad structural forces that are happening in the world uh, that, that that's not just about uh, the Fed. So that's something to keep in mind. And I really like that Bob's idea that we have an income driven cycle where because incomes continue to increase, so people can continue to buy more. And I'd also note that one other way that people can finance additional purchases is through asset prices. And so one of the common ways that monetary policy works is to try to dampen down on that wealth effect. So here's the Fed trying to, you know, make you buy less stuff. But if we have these tremendous uh, 
ebullient asset markets, then people continue to be able to have more money to spend because you know their, their stocks are going higher. Um, in fact, if you look at more traditional measures of how monetary policy is transmitted, it'd be through interest rate sensitive industries like housing. And like last year noted, it looks like that, that area is actually stabilizing. And if you look at the builders, well, Toll Brothers is around on all time highs now. So a lot of the things that the Fed has done doesn't seem to have worked that well. You have asset prices soaring towards all time highs, interest rate sensitive sectors like housing stabilizing. And even if you look at autos, well, vehicle sales are continuing to tick up and as do um, new car prices and used car prices as well. So. I think we're in a really interesting landscape right now. Thank you, Joseph. So kind of on that same note, you you more or less took my next question right out of my mouth, but I would love a little um, a little expanding on that idea. So so kind of going back to your recent publication, it's not working. You did cover this topic in detail. And so from your point of view, especially going back to, Back to how, you know, Australia and Canada paused rates only to kind of be met with that stubborn inflation anyway and had to restart them. Uh, I'm curious from you, Joseph, as well as to the panel as a whole, could you maybe kind of walk us through the implications of a pause in the U.S., given Canada and Australia's lack of success with pausing? Is pausing kind of part of that part of that higher for longer and a deeper recession concept there? So I think that a pause is not unreasonable because, as we know, th there is a lag between where monetary policy is made and when it affects the economy. And as Jim noted, uh, there are some reasonable concerns in the economy. How big of a credit contraction will there be in the banking sector? Uh, it's not easy to know this. And you could have potentially also had some fallout from the from the debt ceiling. So I, I also look at this from a more political perspective. So, so monetary policy, obviously, you're making big political trade-offs. From this perspective of the central bank, they could easily squash inflation overnight. Let's just raise the federal funds rate to 50%. Okay, I'm sure we don't have to worry about inflation anymore. Um, but of course, that there's a big um, trade-off between that and unemployment. So how do you juggle this trade-off? That is ultimately a political decision, and that will depend upon uh, the views of the participants on the FOMC. Now, heading into this FOMC, we have very clear disagreements right now as to how, how to make how to handle this. Uh, you have more hawkish members like, let's say, Waller or, or Bowman and per perhaps Logan. But you also have, let's say, uh, more newly appointed members from the Biden administration who are very clearly more dovish. And so uh, for them, is in that composition, you'd think that the Fed is going to probably be, you know, be more conservative and maybe be a step behind. Now, from, from my perspective, I don't actually think the Fed cares too much about the, the smaller central banks, but I like to look at them because their economy is not the same as, as the US, but similar in a lot of important ways. So what happens over there, I could very much foreshadow what could happen here. Um, the Fed pause, I, I definitely don't think it's the end of the rate hike. I suspect my, my own personal view is um, <laughs> they will be surprised the same way that all the other Western central banks seem to be surprised. And I, I do kind of wonder if that, at this point anyway, if that surprise is indeed a surprise or, or you know, if maybe they, they kind of expect it. Jim, I saw you unmuted there. Yeah. And, and actually, my next question was for you as well. So uh, we can kind of spin off into that. Perfect. Yeah, I'd love to just, you know, first of all, 
couldn't agree more with Joseph. Um, I think when you look at a macro flows perspective, uh, much has been talked about when it comes to, uh, you know, how QT has not actually happened yet. Um, and, uh, you know, the refilling of the TGA could play a significant role, um, you know, in, in actually beginning to take some of that short-term liquidity out of the market right as, um, uh, you know, longer, short, the lagging flows from interest rate changes, which is, you know, call it 18 months uh, or so, really start hitting uh, the economy. So much has been talked about there, but what hasn't been talked as much about, which is very important with that Joseph is highlighting, is, is the global tightening, right, that's happening. Global liquidity is really, um, you know, in for, if you look forward, you know, six months forward, uh, is in for a very different look. Six months ago, we knew there was a lag on interest rates policy. We thought QT was coming. It didn't come because of a bunch of reasons, uh, you know, we, we now, uh, you know, are looking at, including the TGA, et cetera. But I think that global tightening is very important. And I do think it serves as a, as a clue uh, for what's happening. Otherwise, um, in terms of your AI comment, which I actually, I don't know if that's where you want to go with this, but, but I think that's, uh, something that you know we haven't talked about, which I think is very important. It's a narrative. Clearly, you can talk about you know Nvidia's earnings and 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 the trends there. Obviously, it, it's an important long term thing. But but the you know the narrative around it and the moves obviously have not been uh, quote unquote rational. Um, there's structural reasons for that. There's structural flows for that. I kind of hinted at this at the beginning, but I think it's important to understand you know all of this breadth disconnect we're seeing this happens very very often this is something we we understand about market dynamics uh and why that is unhealthy um for for a market and, and does not represent you know a healthy uh structural move uh, when index vol gets pinned and you have fundamental macro liquidity flows that are negative that those macro liquidity flows will filter through to to every stock obviously have a, a higher percent of flows uh, effect on stocks that don't have these other flows, uh, these other particularly vol flows um, and, and, and the structural flows that come off of that. Uh, vol pinned on the index level mean, you know, negative flows structurally mean uh, all the small caps, all of the entities that are, don't, aren't major vol centers tend to go down or have less positive flows. Um, but, uh, you know, wherever there's a short vol center, right, tends to be what, what counterbalances, you know, something on an arbitrage constraint has to counterbalance those fundamental flows if the index at its core is, is more static. Um, and so initially that starts with uh, that short vol center, which has been NVIDIA and the AI sector, right? You start to get then uh, squeezes that then can then translate into the the core um, broad market if they become powerful enough, particularly with calls and the leverage in them that can be significant. And that's the part of the story we're in now, right? So we, we started uh, a call squeeze that was pushed by big macro flows and, and fundamental structural flows coming off of uh, vol arbitrage constraints that have pushed this now to a point of high speculation that is now kind of taking markets along with it, particularly in a structurally important period here in the June expiration where, where structural positive flows exist. 
this all makes sense for kind of final kind of chapters of, of, of a squeeze, but they are not fundamental flows. These are things that are structural and generally they lead to their own unwinding uh, because eventually vol gets too low, you slide uh, to too low of all, vol compression um, becomes unpinned as entities have to come back and uh, you know buy what's, what's increasingly too cheap of all um, right as kind of potential energy from a, you know, lifting a market higher off the ground, right? The, the, the forces of gravity still matter, um, uh, you know, uh, paired with, uh, you know, again, the, the, the potential implied uh, unpinning. So that's kind of a broad kind of view of what's been happening there and, and the movement of those stocks from a flow perspective. I think narrative follows price and, and, uh, and that's why we're hearing all of the talk about AI. Thank you, Gemini. And I'll also really want to pick your brain in a bit here. Um, I'm going to spin over to a question for Last Bear here in a second. Um, but later, I'm going to I'm going to pick your brain about the concept of breadth versus volatility. Um, but we'll we'll table that for a little bit later in the panel. For now, Last Bear, I would love to get your ideas on how a pause can affect the market as well. And for just a little context here. Some economists are still saying that the 2% goal set by the Fed is now unrealistic, even with more hikes or even that pause, with some even saying 3 to 4% will be the new target. I'd love your thoughts here, Last Bear, and as well as if you have any comments on what Joseph and Jim just said. Yeah, I guess for the first part, how the market will react, I, I mean, we'll see in a couple minutes here. But my guess is, given that it's sort of priced in, that there's not going to be a raise, that you know, we haven't really seen huge moves out of FOMC um, in at least the recent meetings, because a lot of it has sort of gone to consensus and has been sort of priced in. I think maybe to points that, that speakers were mentioning earlier about the stickiness of inflation, um, I do think that we potentially sort of in line with the comments I made earlier about acceleration in the economy overall. I do think that we're at a period where sort of the inflation battle may take an interesting pivot here, particularly given that exactly a year ago was the peak in gasoline prices. Um, energy prices have been a huge uh, negative uh, driver of, or, you know, driving inflation year over year inflation metrics down. Um, that's going to start, that benefit is going to start to to go away after June. Um, and at the same time, we still have high levels of core inflation. And to the extent that things like um, that housing continues to to uptick and as it has been over the past couple months, that's going to impact, uh, you know, things like shelter, um, which people have been assuming for some time is going to sort of lead us back down to 2%. Um, and so I do sort of agree with a, a lot of the commentary on the panel um, so far that is really talking about um, sort of the, the next stage of the inflation fight or, or maybe um, the Fed's challenge going forward to sort of catch up to reality that the, that the hikes that they've done so far um, have not necessarily been effective in um, really taming inflation on, on an underlying basis, even though the headline number has come down, um, but it's still sort of twice the, the target level. Um, as for changing the the uh, the inflation target, I just I, I don't think that that is realistic, at least in any near term situation. I think that that would be a huge um, a huge change for the central bank to make, one that I don't think that any of them are willing to sort of publicly admit, even if it was a situation where I think if, if central bankers were comfortable with, let's say, two and a half, three percent inflation, I'd, I don't think that they would tell us. I think that they would. Um, just sort of, you know, work their policy with with that in mind. Um, so I don't see a, a change to the inflation target. 
Does anyone have a response to what Last Bear said? Any disagreement or agreement? Yeah, go ahead, Joseph. I'll just make one note, and I totally agree with the Last Bear about changing the inflation target. That would, from the Fed's perspective, be really destabilizing. But I did also read a very interesting article from Pedro Dicosa, which is a, who is a very good reporter on the Fed, uh, leaking in some conversations about the Fed's future policy review framework. And in that policy review framework, one of the things being discussed is what's called an inflation band. So let's say that instead of hitting a 2% target, they hit a 1.5 to 2% target, you know, just have a band instead. Uh, so I don't know if they were changing the inflation target in the future, but I think that if they were, this would be a very, you know, gentle way of doing it. Um, because let's say that your inflation is at 2.5%, then, you know, 2.5% uh, under a hard 2% target would be too high. But if you have an inflation band, you know, that's okay. Uh, now, in that article, uh, former Vice Chair Clarita was citing, uh, cited as a, a proving of this line of inquiry. So in the future, if we do change an inflation target, I think that this, it could be done in a, in a more subtle way, like, like having a band. And just to, to add on to that, I, I guess we did technically change the inflation target back in 2020 when the Fed moved to an average inflation targeting regime as opposed to um, a strict 2% sort of cap on inflation. So I do think that that's, you know, in a similar way to, to bans or something like that, um, it's sort of a softer way to provide more flexibility, which actually we, we already have seen happen to some degree. Yeah, Bob, go ahead. But, you know, like we've had two years of elevated inflation way above the Fed's goal. What that would mean is that they need to, if they're really pursuing that uh, in, a, in a serious way, like that means like bring on the 1% inflation for, you know, the next five years to meet the, the level target over time. And so, you know, if anything, if they really care about that, they care about the level of prices and averages over time. They have even more work to do. I think they probably don't care about it um, as as much as they they'd like to admit. But you know that they they got a lot of work to do. <laughs> Part of this conversation, and I'll, I'll just leave my thoughts at this, which is like a lot of people, um, you know, want to talk about whether they're going to change the mandate. Like you, you don't change the mandate when you're not not anywhere close to the mandate maybe later they once they get much closer they'll reconsider adjusting it uh to maybe make it more flexible or have a wider range but like core inflation core pce they're five percent you know it's going to be tough for them to get to two percent anytime soon and so they're not going to be going around having meaningful conversations about changing uh the target until they have the credibility of having actually gotten to the target they originally had claimed. Jim, go ahead. Bob mentioned, you know, credibility. I think that's the important word, right? Uh, the, the target is a narrative tool. Uh, the, you know, the power of the Fed is, is probably more in, in what it says and what it, 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 it directs as its intentions than, than policy even. Um, the reality is the Fed, uh, is trying to maintain some level of credibility that they have control over the long end of the curve 
um, and long-term, more importantly, long-term inflation. Um, if the market continues to believe that they do, which it still does, um, they can control long-term inflation reflexively in the sense that, you know, you don't want long-term inflation expectations going higher for two reasons. The first of which we all know, which is, you know, demand gets pulled forward. Um, but, but two, you know, if you can borrow, uh, you know, at what are long-term negative real rates and, uh, you know, you can buy everything pinned down that naturally also forces inflation higher. And this, you know, goes back to the seventies and the issues we had there. So the, it is a narrative tool. It is a, it is a, you know, their attempt to maintain the credibility. The problem with that is um, if markets, you know, if, if we are right and, uh, you know, um, and they, the structural inflation is sticky, uh, you know, ultimately they will, over time, markets will lose uh, faith that, that the Fed does have control over that. Uh, it's a function of time, um, at which point they'll have a bigger battle on their hands. Uh, that doesn't happen in kind of phase one of this cycle. Right now, you know, they've had control for 40 years. And, you know, uh, at baseline, it, it is natural to assume, uh, as the world is, that, uh, that the Fed will continue to maintain control. Uh, the real question about those targets will come, um, you know, if we actually see sticky inflation um, uh, on the core level more structurally, and then the Fed is forced to come and raise more and uh, that's that's the part of the story that becomes more difficult to control when the fed loses credibility thank you guys so again here any other comments perhaps around credibility or the ideas of bands as pedro a good friend of our spaces pedro da costa who couldn't be here today uh wrote about and that joseph brought up bob go ahead well, I just I, I wanted to riff on that credibility point. I think it's a really good one just by connecting it to um, to the market pricing. Break even inflation, five year break even inflation is currently at two percent. Right. So there's an expectation priced into the markets that the Fed will definitely bring inflation durably down to the two percent mandate and have it be there essentially forever. And I think it's a, you know. The question, you know, people will say, people will sort of say on Twitter and other places like, oh, the Fed has no credibility. Well, I mean, break-even inflation's at their target, despite all of the structural inflationary pressures and the fact that uh, inflation has been above their mandate for a long time, uh, you know, for years at this point. I think that the key thing when you're trading markets is where where is there an imbalance between what's priced in and what could plausibly transpire. And when I look at break-even inflation at 2%, I mean, there's a real risk that if the Fed remains two steps behind in terms of their monetary policy for an extended period of time, that could shift and that could shift fast. And essentially nothing's priced in, like essentially zero risk of that is priced in over the course of the next five years. And that is, um, you know, that's one of those places that could really create a lot of stress in the financial markets if it started to move and people started to even get an inkling that the Fed wasn't going back to their target. I would just add one thing about the market implied inflation expectations. So, I mean, there's many ways to measure inflation expectations. So the experience in Australia from a recent speech is really interesting. So if you look at their inflation swaps, it will show that oh, the RBA has inflation out of control. 
Uh, but then the RBA looked at another measure of inflation, which is union expectations, uh, which of course influence wages, and th those kind of soared much higher. So I, I think that's part of the reason why uh, they resumed hiking. So it, it's what's pricing the market is is one thing, but you know everyone has different expectations, and it's it's difficult to grasp what that is. And I'm sure the Fed is also looking at many measures as well. Beautiful. Thank you, Joseph. Jem, I saw you unmuted for a second there, too. Did you have something to add as no, well? No, I was just going to say I uh, completely agree with both these guys. There's a, there's a definite disconnect with what's happening globally and where markets are pricing inflation now, what we're seeing in U.S. markets. Um, you know, it does make for an interesting kind of asymmetric opportunity if played properly, uh, given that, you know, the, the complete uh, confidence markets seem to have in the Fed and their ability to control this. So I'm going to pivot a little bit back to something we talked about right at the beginning here, that, that discussion of nominal growth. Now, as mentioned, the labor market remains strong and wage growth is also underway. Bob, you recently discussed the connotations of wage growth and the labor market. And to quote kind of what you were saying, significantly more pain will be needed to ease wage pressures. Now, granted, Bob, you were discussing this in reference to the UK rates, but can you apply that logic to the UK, or excuse me, to the US for us here? What needs to occur with wages and employment to combat inflation, if anything? Can you kind of kind of break down your analysis of the labor market for us in greater detail here, Bob? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, to... Uh, Joseph's point about look at other economies because they are additional laboratories to see how the sort of cause effect linkages work when it comes to the, the dynamics that we're seeing. And because we have so little sample size in our own life experience of high inflation environments, it's important to imp improve that sample size by looking across the developed economies, even though, of course, there's nuances that are different, but look across the developed economies to kind of get a feel of those things. And I think in that context, looking at the UK and Europe, I think, are particularly interesting lenses. And the reason why that is, is those are economies that have had pretty crummy growth over the course of the last year. And if anything, you know, in Europe, things look to be even getting, getting a bit worse in the UK, Growth has basically been at zero for almost a year. And yet, when you look at what's going on with their wage, wage growth, it continues to be relatively elevated. You know, wages growing at, in the UK, 6%, in Europe, at 4, four to 5%. Uh, and that's really important because what it connects is the fact that despite the fact that growth has slowed and it's almost like it's kind of bad, you haven't had enough loosening of labor markets for a variety of reasons, including demographic reasons, to create, to ease the pressure off the wages. And so you're still getting a fair amount of nominal growth and nominal spending, despite the fact that real growth is pretty bad, because, and you're not getting any easing of that inflationary pressure. And so if we take that to the U.S. context, and we look at the, the, the mechanics in the U.S., like, we're way behind where even the UK and Europe are. You know, growth is at or above potential uh, in the US. The unemployment rates at secular lows. Wage growth is at five or six percent, depending on how you want to calculate it. And so when you think about it, we, we have all this talk about are we in a recession or are we not in a recession? And that is such a boring 
conversation because it does not matter whether we're in a recession or technically in a recession or not in a recession. What matters is, is there enough weakness in the economy to create a significant loosening of the labor markets in order to break this wage, this continued wage growth? And that's going to take things like hundreds of basis points of moves in the unemployment rate to get there. And we're not anywhere in the ballpark of getting to that point. Like, go study the 70s. The magnitudes are different, so don't get caught up in that. But, like, it took, you know, six, 700 basis points of labor market of, of unemployment rises in order to get inflation down, right? And we think it's going to happen with, you know, unemployment going to 4 or 4.2 or 4.5. It's not going to happen that way. It's not enough. Anybody have anything to add to what Bob just said? All right, so I think what I want to do here is I'm going to go back to picking on Jem here. So Jem, you recently appeared on Real Vision Daily Briefing where you discussed the relationship between breadth and volatility, citing NVIDIA as the head of the spear. Some have said that with lower highs, even with higher lows in equities, that breadth is still lagging. Jim, can you walk us through what that breadth volatility relationship is like and what does it tell you about the market as a whole during this rally? Yeah, I mean, I tried to kind of touch on this a little earlier, um, but, uh, you know, without without going incredibly deep here uh, in, the, in the kind of the math, the, the reality is the index itself, right, to fixed strike ball, which I try and talk about and bring people into as much as possible. So looking at ball as just the VIX, right? Upside uh, volatility is lower than downside volatility, um, right? Just because of the amount of skew in the marketplace. And as markets go up, you slide in products to a lower, you know, in the indexes to a lower implied volatility. So at the money volatility, we've continued to see get compressed to lower and lower levels, not just because of uh, vol supply, but also because we've been sliding higher. That at the money vol is, is, is low enough where it has reflexively, right? Because dealers are, are long this vol. Uh, when the market goes up, they sell uh, vol. When the market goes down, they buy vol. Has reflexively pinned vol more and more. And, and the effects from, uh, from OPEX and open positioning because of the skew, because uh, of the put positioning in the market, has also driven support in these VANA and charm flows I talked so much about. So that's, that's what's happening at the index level, right? You're getting this reflexive vol compression that is kind of a, a reflexive loop. Something that we saw in 2017, which I've talked about, drive the lowest realized and implied volatility by 30% that we've seen in 125 years. There was so much vol selling, that vol compressed so much, it got into a, um, you know, a loop. So this is what's happening and, and happens, uh, you know, uh, which drives vol compression cycles um, in the S&P. And it's important to have it. The, the S&P is, most people think is a, uh, is an index. Oh, it must just be a, a amalgamation of the constituent uh, values. No, the S&P is as much a center, actually more than a center than the individual stocks in terms of flows. And so you really need to kind of flip your thinking upside down on this and understand that the flows coming off the S&P themselves are, are more a center of gravity even than the individual stocks. Once you realize that and realize that the index is fairly pinned um, and, and, and on a realized basis, um, 
and, and was particularly so for, uh, you know, until those last couple of weeks, right? This is kind of the undoing of that that begins. But once you realize that the, the index is pinned and you have weakness now um, from parts of the market on a more structural flows basis, right? You have all of you have the banking run, right? You have small uh, cap, you know, uh, and, and other areas of the market that are very weak. Uh, broadly, uh, you know, uh, the, the market has not done well. And again, we can talk about the last several weeks as a, as a separate part of this. But in general, and, and what, what that does is if the index itself can't go down and other areas of the market are declining, by definition, those, by arbitrage constraints, flows have to go into some area, some stocks in the market. And not surprisingly, it goes into the places that are weak, uh, meaning weak, when I say weak, weak from a vol perspective, that are short vol, that dealers are, are short vol in. And, uh, you know, where the most potential, um, you know, uh, flows can be put to work, which tend to be bigger kind of vol centric stocks, particularly ones that also happen to have short vol interest. So you have this pairing of short vol on the upside in these AI and tech names um, uh, paired with, uh, like I said, um, a need of flows to come back in and, and, and push in against that. So. Uh, it's a, that it, in, its, in and as of itself is a reflexive loop. You have positive flows coming in, being forced in that area, particularly in a June OPEX, um, as you have short call positioning by dealers that they, they have a hard time hedging. And then you have a consistent buyer that's making, because of the leverage that's buying more and more and speculations that's squeezing that more and more. Now, you know, that, that can go on for a while, right? but it can't go on forever. And what it, what it, what's important about it is it speaks to the underlying weakness of the, the overarching picture and the overarching uh, liquidity and flows. Um, and uh, generally after a squeeze that goes far enough, right? Uh, ultimately it, it kind of serves as I kind of highlighted to its own undoing eventually um, because of just the sheer amount of speculation and, you know, the potential energy you've created by taking something increasingly off the, off the floor. Again, I think everybody knows the stats here, but I think as of yesterday, um, you know, the top seven stocks were up 54% and constituted 97% of the S&P 500 move this year. Um, uh, you know, that, those are fairly historic numbers and the deviation between the, the small cap and large cap are, are sitting at, uh, I think, 50-year um, kind of extension. These are these are not healthy numbers, then they speak to an underlying structural uh, you know, function of, of flows, uh, not, a, not a fundamental reality. So, so real quick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on last bear next, but Jim, just as a kind of follow-up to what you said about how you know, the, the vast majority of this market-wide movement we've seen being on the shoulders of those seven big stocks, do you think we see some kind of potential shift or unwinding Given that fact, like, will will we see you know the laggards catch up, or will we see more likely these these seven powerhouses, as you will, uh, kind of run out of steam here? And and if we do see that shift, do you think it'll be a violent one? Uh, the the end of cycles um, tend to uh, again they they tend to blow off and create more energy that can then end violently. Um, that said, um, 
you know, time is also, it, it is also a function of time. Um, I, I've been talking about this. The, the more we rally and the more we squeeze and the more, the higher we go, it's like stretching a rubber band, right? It's, it is a, it is a situation that accelerates and potentially makes more violent the decline that we believe um, is, is likely. That doesn't mean it has to play out that way. Uh, reflexively, you know, I go in here and talk about things other people do. People become more knowledgeable about things. Uh, it can stretch out the timeline and make the, then make the decline less violent. But what it does speak to more importantly is uh, the higher we go, this is a topping process and the more violent the, the return is likely to be uh, to, in the other direction and the sooner it's likely to happen. And I think that's the way you really got to think about it. You got to think about it in terms of distribution. But what, it, what I can say, say with some conviction is that, uh, you know, this is a topping process and that a decline is highly likely uh, from, from this or, you know, these coming levels uh, in a much more secular uh, fashion, meaning in the next six, nine months, a year. Um, again, how it plays out is a function of, of both price and time. Um, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll leave it there, but I, I will say the higher we go, the faster we go, uh, the more dangerous and fast sooner things are likely to happen. Thank you, Jim. So before I pick on last Bay or here, do we have any comments as a follow-up to what Jim just said? All right. So last bear, this question is going to kind of go right back to the topic of liquidity and markets. So you had a great piece on your sub stack, which again, everybody should be subscribed to titled refunding the treasury about this topic a bit, where you explore possible methodology that will be used to refund that treasury. Given the financing plans by the treasury to increase TGA cash balance to 550 billion by the end of June, which, which I believe to be a pretty big step. I think you wrote in your article that it was around 23 billion at the beginning of June, which is significantly less than even the daily spending. Um, but you gave us a little background about what was happening and what happened with the debt ceiling and how it affected the market overall, especially given what the Fed said. It was not within their purview but is of the treasuries for obvious reasons. Uh, Les Bear, can you kind of walk us through some of that? Yeah, sure. And I, I, maybe I'd start by saying I've talked a lot about sort of these um, monetary mechanisms and liquidity flows for some time now. But I, I would just want to say from the start that I'm, I'm definitely not somebody who believes that there's like a, a fair value translation from uh, some sort of net liquidity level to asset prices necessarily. Um, I do think that there's, you know, that we have seen some correlation that's worth like noting. Um, but during the last tightening cycle or QT cycle before the pandemic, um, the market performed um, moderately well with a good amount of volatility, but but it overall increased during that period. Um, so I, I would caution people from just, you know, looking at these sort of net liquidity figures and trying to trade explicitly based on, on those. Um, but I do think that this is kind of this is a big issue that's that's worth this discussing, even though I think a lot of the discussion has become sort of black on black or white. But basically, the, the big uh, question is, so the Treasury has to go out and, and raise a bunch of money. I think it's actually um, it will be less than 550 billion by the end of June. That was based off of the the financing plans that they released in early May, which they've since sort of revised down, which makes sense given the timing of of how late the debt ceiling resolution came. Um, but, but broadly speaking, the idea is that um, for the past year, 
Um, the Treasury is basically uh, almost exactly a year. The Treasury has been burning down a cash balance that started at about $900 billion um, back in May of last year. Um, and they you know, drew that down almost to zero in the past, in the past month. Now they're going to go back and sort of replenish that to some degree. Um, and so basically the Treasury is going to market asking the market for uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of Treasury bills and coupons. And depending on how that's funded, whether it's from bank reserves or whether it's from the reverse repo facility, um, is significant because um, bank reserves um, have, you know, were falling pretty substantially in about a year ago. They've since been sort of flat based on these, um, the TGA mechanics that have been playing out for the past year or so. Um, but but could potentially start to fall pretty rapidly to the extent um, that most of that funding comes from uh, banks, bank reserves rather than um, sort of withdrawals out of the reverse repo facility. Um, and we could get to the point where we're testing um, sort of the adequate level of reserves, or at least for certain financial institutions, the adequate level of reserves in the banking system. And so um, I think that puts pressure. Uh, I think it's the best way to think about it is just to like be aware of the issue and track it as we go over the next couple months and see how the reverse repo balances move versus the funding plan, um, how bank reserves, um, you know, move as well. Um, and if it starts to get to a point where we start to start to really draw down on those bank reserves, um, then I do think that puts incremental more pressure on the banking sector um, and probably some incremental pressure on uh, yields um, as basically the treasury is going out and issuing new debt and needs to find new buyers for that um, and potentially downward pressure on, on stocks as well. But I, I would also I think it's an important issue, but I also think that it's become one that's sort of myopic in terms of like, a, um, you know, this is going to determine the market, which I, I don't think is necessarily the case. Thank you, Last Bear. We've got about two minutes until we get our data released. Jem, I see you have your hand up. I do want to kick this around the panel while we wait for those numbers. So, Jem, go ahead. Yeah, honestly, just real quick, I, um, I, I would love to hear Joseph's kind of view on the plumbing, what he's seen so far um, in terms of the first, uh, call it, week or week and a half since uh the the debt ceiling uh you know re reverse repo facilities have, have not moved as much uh have not had a, as much of a draw as we might have expected which you would think means more bank reserve um uh, i don't know I'm, I'm curious to hear joseph's thoughts yeah i think i think um well first of all i think last bear did a really good discussion uh, as to what we should look forward to going forward now with respect to what's actually happening, I think right now, so we're having uh, June corporate tax payment dates. So that's that's responsible for some of the drawdown in the reverse repo facility. Now, going forward, though, now my expectation is that, as you noted, Jim, there's some reflexivity to this. And, and I have no doubt that the Fed has been uh, bombarded with many people claiming about the dangers of the sudden liquidity withdrawal. So my sense is that the Treasury is trying to manage this by uh, adjusting its issuance one, to be a bit slower than expected. Like Lasper noted, they had a target of 550 by the end of this month. Now it's 425, much more manageable, and it gives the market more time to adjust. But the second thing that they did is I think they're trying to adjust their bill issuance such that more of liquidity will be drained out of the RP rather than the banking sector. They're doing this by revising their bill issuance to be shorter in tenor. Um, so, for example, they have a new set of regular cash management bills that matures uh, in, in six-week increments. So this is better for the money market funds because they don't have to, let's say, buy something and then, oh, the Fed hikes or cuts rates and how cause them to be offside. So 
uh, they're trying to encourage money funds to buy more of these treasury bills such that the liquidity drain will come out of the RRP, which in my view would be much more market neutral. Now, so far it's really early, so I don't know if they've had a lot of success yet. When I look at the most recent auction results yesterday, it uh, looks like the cash management bills are cleared at below the reverse repo facility rate. And so that's not the uh, money funds buying. I've also spoken to uh, uh, someone in the dealer community today, and it seems like you know they're, they're seeing some more interest in money market funds. So um, my best guess going forward is that I had expected that this to be a large strain from the banking system, but it looks like the, the money market funds will do their shares well. Uh, so I think the worst case scenario, if you're thinking about this drawing down liquidity in the banking sector, is, is less likely going forward. All right, real quick, folks. It looks like we got the expected pause. So that kind of money market discussion gives me a decent segue into another topic here. And then I'll kind of want to spin off into the US dollar world currency status as well. But first here, um, does anybody have any initial comments on the pause? Does it validate? Does it invalidate your expectations? Uh, Bob, I see your hand there. Feel free. Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the pause is not that surprising, obviously, because it was 100% priced in. Go to the docs. We have a 5.6% terminal rate priced into the end of 23, 4.6 priced into the end of 24. That's pretty different than what Fed funds is pricing right now. And, uh, you know, suggest something like 50-ish basis points of additional tightening from where we are today, uh, 25 to 50 basis points. And so, you know, it's about as uh, hawkish a pause as uh, I've ever seen. Yeah, I think the Dodd plot's a big story here. That's a big move in the Dodd plot. Um, and I think you see a little bit of the reaction in longer term yields um, right now. It looks like they're up about seven basis points since that announcement. But that's that's definitely a hawkish pause. Go ahead, Les Bear. It, it is kind of funny to me just thinking live why they would pause if they're also going to increase the the terminal rate um, the way, in the way that they did. You'd think it'd make more sense um, to continue hiking if they know that that's what's, or if they think that that's what's required. But I'm not yeah. sure how much my opinion think, matters. So, so my view there, Last Bear, is that this pause was more a function of timing um, than it was policy uh, you know, and what they're seeing and reacting to policy. Again, it was, I think, a function of both debt ceiling, TGA issuance, and the concerns surrounding that um, building up on top of uh, the, you know, the banking run stuff from earlier. I think the the view was, okay, let's hold on here. Let's not do anything sudden. Um, let's pause and see. But the information that's come in since the market reaction is obviously reflexively part of that as well. Um, you know, uh, has them has them again, as I was mentioning before this came out uh, a bit more um, trying to push against uh, some of these inflationary core pressures. So so a quick question on this for the panel as a whole. Anybody feel free to chime in. Do you do you see this similar to the Canada pause or Australia's pause and then hiking later, given the increase of terminal rate, given the dot plots? Does this mean we follow our fellow Australians and Canadians? Bob, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a little different than their experience because 
I think they, the the Bank Canada and the RBA genuinely thought that they shouldn't do additional tightening, uh, and then you know realize the error of their ways. I think what we're seeing here is, um, you know, the Fed does not surprise, does not want to surprise the market in any moment in terms of the actual behavior on the day that uh, an announcement is made. And so they followed what, what the vice chair said a few weeks ago. But this is, you know, this is a, a, a pause and a skip. This is every intention that they're showing, at least in the dots, is that they will continue to uh, hike, which is, which is different from Canada and Australia, who, who, uh, who were surprised, I think, by the persistence of the inflationary pressures in their economy, and so then kind of had to catch up after they recognized it. Jim, go ahead. I think it's a perfect example example for listeners of how you know narrative just follows price, though. I mean, this isn't new information, really. I mean, the market has just been ignoring the Fed and everything it's been saying <clears throat> and all the data that's been coming out if it's surprised by this, right? Uh, the reality is we had you know hot un- uh, employment for two cycles now, we've had uh, the Fed and, and pretty much every speaker coming out basically, uh, you know, uh, talking about this, but markets continue to rally. Now the information comes out and, oh no, it's bearish. But that really is more of a function of flows and where we sat in the cycle, right? For fun, structural flows in the market um, than it is a function of this narrative. Hey, sorry, guys. I have to jump in on Fox Business, so I'll have to head out now. But thanks so much for having me. Hey, no worries. Thanks, as always, for coming, Joseph. Folks, if you're not following him, please do. Joseph puts out a ton of great information on the regular. Oh, go ahead. So I was just going to um, add that I think that the probably one of the biggest questions out there in, in finance right now is whether the 10-year resolves upwards or whether short-term rates sort of resolve downwards over the next, you know, coming year or so. But, but basically, they, you know, we talked about it before, but there is just such a big disconnect, I think, um, in sort of where particularly the bond market overall is, is viewing, um, you know, inflation break-evens, um, where they're pricing longer duration, uh, you know, what's implied by, by their pricing of sort of a deeply inverted yield curve. And I think that um, you know, this dot plot definitely challenges that perspective. And to the extent that the 10 year is going to sort of resolve upwards towards the federal funds rate, as opposed to the opposite, which is currently what the market expects, um, that has really big implications for asset prices, um, at least, uh, you know, fix, fixed income asset prices, also uh, things that are related to fixed income yields like mortgages and, and whatnot. So um, I think that's, it's going to be interesting to see how that resolves. I do think that this, increase in the dot plot um, as much as, you know, uh, everyone on the panel prior to this, you know, prior to the release was talking about the stickiness of inflation and sort of the next battle. Um, I do think that this was probably a surprise to the upside in terms of where that terminal rate is. And to the extent that we're still going up rather than, you know, staying flat and, and going down, that's, that's a pretty big shift. Bob, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think, um, the the overall dynamic here of continued tightening, you know, even this may be still a bit behind the curve when you look at the when you look at the basic picture of 
how strong stocks are, how low unemployment is, how decent growth is, how wages are growing. Like, talk about ignoring the macro data. I love, I love that. There's, there's no incremental information. If you had just been looking at the macro data, right, this was obvious. The question is whether or not the Fed is going to respond to the macro data in line with what it's telling them. And so far, you know, over the course of the, I mean, really since the SVB situation have been very hesitant because of concerns about that. And now we're finally starting, you know, here I'd say are finally starting to recognize that that macro data suggests that they should be moving it along uh, more substantively than they have so far. But look, in a big picture sense, you know, the S&P 500 is down 50 basis points. Like, uh, you know, it's at uh, 43.50 and is down, you know, 50 basis points. Like, let's also keep this all into perspective. Like, we are not close to the type of asset price adjustment that typically is necessary to create a meaningful slowing in the economy. And that's just an important, that's an important place to hold which reflects the fact that we're, we're probably not still not close. We're still a step and a half behind. It's just that the Fed's not two steps behind. Perfect. Thank you. Really good feedback on that. And I, and I mean, I just got to thank you guys as a whole, as always, for keeping these so easy for me with how fluid you guys kind of go back and forth. Uh, so I just do want to take an aside here to kind of pivot to that that concept I mentioned earlier uh, about the U.S. dollar as world currency. Now, per Markets Insider, economists have noted significantly rapid erosion of the U.S. dollar standing as a reserve currency. Just for a little context here, in 2003, the U.S. dollar accounted for roughly two-thirds of total global reserves. By 2021, this had fallen to roughly 55%. However, from 2021 to 2022, the U.S. dollar saw an 8% decline from 55% to 47%, 10 times the average annual pace of decline, which, mind you, was accredited largely to sanctions against Russia following the Ukraine invasion. Now, yesterday, when asked about the risk of de-dollarization, Janet Yellen said we should, quote, expect over time a gradually increased share of other assets and reserve holdings for countries, indicating a gradual decline in USD's place within those global reserves. Now, Bob, I know Forex isn't your full specialty, but many listeners want us to discuss the U.S. dollar's dominance and if it's at risk or not. So, Bob, I'd love your thoughts here, and then I'm going to kick this out to the panel, maybe with Jim, right after you, Bob. Well, I've been, um, I uh, have spent my entire career having conversations with people about, uh, people asserting that the dollar was going to collapse as the global reserve currency and me saying that it's not and me taking a lot of heat for that. Uh, and then the reality is like, take a look at the charts. The charts show that the dollar share of global reserves today is the same as it was 75 years ago. It's basically unchanged. The, some of the adjustments and, and, and Jens Norvig did some good, uh, good work on this. Some of the adjustments, particularly in, Reserves going into yen are a reflection of some of the ways in which uh, uh, the, the a lot of that stuff was swapped into dollars in an attempt to get additional yield by central banks. And so if you adjust for that, there's basically been no change in the dollar's share of global reserves over the last 20 years. And so, like, this, this is not 
I, I, I mean, I, I sort of, fine, I'm glad we're talking about it because it's a question that comes up a fair amount. But like the big picture is this is a non-story. And in particular, when you think about this question, what you have to think about is what are the alternatives? Europe, the European capital markets are too fractured and credit risky for people to invest in. The Japanese bond market is basically, you know, is hugely owned by the BOJ and is illiquid. If you have any, you know, any meaningful size reserves, UK, Canada, Australia bond markets aren't big enough. And then, you know, the RMB market, which is, you know, some people have would think would be the, the obvious second choice, like their capital controls. And even the Russians won't invest in RMB because they're concerned that in a time of challenging liquidity, the Chinese won't give them their money back. And so you have to think about what are the alternatives? Those alternatives all suck. There's a reason why the dollar has maintained its position as a function of that. And so without with the absence of an alternative, the dollar is, you know, uh, is 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 the best looking place to save. And that's why its role as the reserve currency hasn't really changed. The only the last thing I'll say is that the one place where uh, the one place that might benefit from this and we're already seeing the flows is in gold. The vast majority of investors don't hold any gold in their portfolios. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Even a relatively modest reallocation of global reserves from dollars or any other currencies to gold could create a heck of a squeeze on gold. And so it's one of the tactical reasons why gold in your portfolio, not just from a structural portfolio construction standpoint, which it's a good asset to hold, but why you might think about adding gold structurally in your portfolio today. Thank you, Bob. Jem, I see your hand, but Bob actually just gave me a great segue, and I'm going to kick it directly to you, and you can also tie in your thoughts on what he just said as well. So to what Bob just said, Yellen did also state during that same line of questioning that, quote, there is virtually no meaningful workaround for most countries for using the dollar as a reserve currency. However, it leads me to this question here. However, some large countries have indeed started using other means, including U.S. allies. France, for example, completed their first yuan-settled LNG trade in March. India purchased oil in UAE, Durham, and rubles. So, Jem, and then last bear, is the U.S. dollar in trouble, or is the rapid erosion a temporary one due to global political and economical factors? I, I want to emphasize, and this a way you always need to think about things. It's about time frames, and it's about you know, bigger 100-year, 40-year, 10-year, you know, different cycles, right? Uh, and, and the importance of these changes. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think the most important thing to think about is, yes, on a very kind of much longer time frame, the, uh, you know, the U.S., as Bob mentioned, is the cleanest shirt and, 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 the, and the laundry. You know, it has the, the blessings of geography, you know, commodity strength, military strength, you know, the biggest economy in the world, right? It, it is, and the dollar is reflexively, it's hard to unseat for uh, just because it's, it's got the, you know, first mover advantage. It's, it's already kind of uh, embedded within all the economies and trade of the world. Um, and and it's, it's very uh, difficult. I'm not going to say impossible for that to unwind quickly. Um, that said, that is a very long time frame. What we see during inflationary periods, if we are 
truly as we believe in a more secularly inflationary period, um, is that they are not just tied, you know, again, I've talked about this populism trend. I don't want to go into that ad nauseum here, but, you know, there, it's not a coincidence that during the 70s that that populism that, that you know, came with, you know, created the Great Society program and everything else that kicked off inflation also led to protectionism, a, a beginning of a Cold War, the beginning of a, a hot war in Vietnam. It led to resource competition globally, the OPEC crisis. These things are not independent events. I think very few people talk about the connection between all of these events. Populism is local. Uh, people are tribal. They are believe uh, you know, they're, they're in their communities. They're their country. They believe in providing for their countries. Um, uh, capitalism is international. Uh, we've had a massive expansion of capitalism over the uh, uh, globalism over the last forty years. Technological advancement. When you start to try and refix your local distribution uh, of wealth. Um, uh, you know, you you now if that if that is a priority, and which it is globally now, right? Um, you all go into your corners, and uh, you go into it from a cooperative um, cycle to a competitive cycle, and that's where we are. That's why we're seeing again a beginning Cold War with China, a beginning uh, hot war in in Ukraine. It's why we're seeing OPEC pushing against the U.S. and and, and the division between Saudi Arabia in the U.S. as it comes to energy, uh, much more uh, front and center. These are not coincidences, right? Um, they are all tied into the same thing. And when that happens, if you look at the 1970s as a data set, what you see is dramatic loss of control by the central, Fed, you know, the Federal Reserve or, or the, the central power monetarily. And you see significantly more, uh, more economic warfare as well which increases volatility, um, which naturally will lead to people diversifying, right, uh, to other kind of areas. Um, so it is a more unbalanced, um, um, less, uh, again, we're going from a very two-dimensional world where the Fed has complete control, that the Fed put was dominant globally, to a situation, if inflation is indeed secular, which, again, I have strong reasons to believe it is, um, to a situation where the Fed has much less control and there's much more economic warfare that leads to uh, diversification by global entities and a desire to, uh, to, to unseat some of that power that, that sits so centrally in, 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 the, in the Federal Reserve and the U.S. dollar's hand. So on a more decade-long time frame, I would expect this to be a trend that's not going away. Um, that doesn't mean the U.S. dollar is getting unseated and that it's going away or that this is a, um, you know, uh, going to risk the U.S.'s undoing. But it will mean more volatility for the dollar, more FX volatility, more rates volatility, and yes, more precious metals volatility. That volatility in particular is very low relative to the forward outcomes, I would say. We can talk about directional gold or not, but what I can say with fairly high confidence is that the volatility levels in gold are way too low. Thank you, Jim. So that actually brings me to another question. We've got about nine minutes before the presser. So I wanted to hit this one uh, before we jump to that. So kind of back to this, this topic of that erosion and whether or not the U.S. dollar is in trouble at all. 
Um, like we mentioned, signs do indicate the likely reason for that decline was those sanctions placed on Russia following the Ukraine invasion. Now, this did raise concerns about future relations with other countries, with China specifically, that they given China is the second largest foreign creditor of U.S. treasuries, under the right circumstances, be it, be it an invasion of Taiwan, sanctions placed by the U.S. for that purpose, you know, under the right circumstances, China could dump their $859 billion in treasury securities, uh, basically overnight. When asked about this, Yellen indicated that there have not been any exercises in preparation for such an event. So my question, let's start with Last Bear, and then I'll kick it to the panel as a whole. Is this a real threat? And if so, what can even be done to mitigate it should it happen? Well, I think in, in the case of Russia, so moving back a little bit, Russia's been uh, reducing their dependence on um, U.S currency as a as a reserve or u.s treasuries as a reserve currency in, in their central bank holdings for a long time going back to you know, you know crimea and all that stuff back in 2014 so they've been preparing over a long period of time to sort of you know for what they expected eventually more aggressive sanctions which obviously came with the full invasion of ukraine last year um and so that's a process that took years um to do and i, I don't think that and again, I'm, I'm not an expert in exactly how this would work, but I, I think that if the U.S. freezes someone's, they would they would want to sell off in advance of, of having their assets frozen, basically. So they want to move into something else first. Um, so I don't think that there's a situation where all of a sudden, uh, you know, the, if the U.S. puts sanction on, um, on a certain entity, then it, it can't interact with others on U.S. systems effectively. So um, I think that it would have to be sort of a preemptive move by one of these countries um, say China to to sort of start to roll away, which arguably you could say that they have been to a degree, but they still hold about a trillion dollars of, of treasuries. Um, so I I also just kind of agree with what other folks have mentioned right, on the topic, which is that you have to look at what the alternatives are, and for a number of different reasons, for each one, there's not really a great alternative. And the other thing is that the U.S. has um, probably a better economic story than any of these other developed countries, right? Like Japan's been in stagnation for a long time. Uh, UK, we just talked about their challenges there. Um, you, you might not love the Fed's policy at every turn, but I would argue that they've had better policy over the past 15 years or so than the ECB. Um, China is uh, not a country that has open capital markets to, you know, to, to other countries, so it's kind of its own thing. Um, and the U.S. has a lot of stuff that that, pe that people want to buy in dollars. So, you know, you can buy oil, you can buy natural gas, you can buy food. Um, it's valuable, and uh, part of that is based on the economic production of the country um, and the anticipation that that economic growth is, is going to continue and that those dollars will be able to purchase uh, goods and services of use going forward. So um, I'd probably sit with every with the other panelists here and not being particularly concerned about it. Though I do think it's a geopolitical question, like as, you know, as, um, as was mentioned earlier, I do think that there's a lot of geopolitical implications. Beautiful. Thank you. So we've got about Five minutes now until the presser begins. So what I want to do here at the tail end is we've got three of you left here. I know Joseph had to leave, um, but real quick, I just kind of want to go down the line. Have you give any closing thoughts you have and plug anything you're working on? If you have anything coming out, any new articles that just came out, please plug the hell out of them. We want people to continue learning from you guys and and 
you know, I think everyone in the audience has a lot to gain from you guys. So let's start with that. We'll go with Jem here. Any closing thoughts and anything you got to plug before we move on to the presser, Jem? Yeah, I just emphasize, you know, uh, macro definitely matters over, uh, and particularly in this world, over uh, quarterly, annual timeframes. Um, but if we're talking weekly, monthly, um, watch the flows, understand them uh, in the context of the macro, top down and bottoms up is, is the answer. Um, that's what we do at Kai Volatility. We, you know, you can look at our research, both from macro and, and, and microstructure perspective at kaivolatility.com backslash news. We're also launching August 1, a macro, uh, asymmetric macro kind of vol product that's going to expand our offering. So if people are interested, feel free to reach out uh, at the website, kaivolatility.com uh, and request a meeting. Thanks, guys. Absolutely do that, guys. Jem, invaluable resource for all things macro, especially in that volatility space, Jem. I can't, I cannot emphasize enough how grateful I am to have you on here for basically all of these. Same goes to Bob Lasbear and, and Joseph, of course. Bob, any last comments here? Anything you got to plug that's coming out? Uh, last comment, just uh, looking at the, uh, the thing I'll be looking at is, you know, how much does the market start to price in? Uh, the Fed actually doing more work and just, you know, as of 2.15, looks like about six tenths of a hike additional priced in from this point, uh, which is, you know, considerably less than the one and a half to two hikes implied by the dots. But, uh, you know, we get to roll up our sleeves and uh, listen to Powell and see what he has to say. You know, that's always interesting. Um, uh, thanks to Plug. I'm the PM of the HFND ETF. You can learn more about that at uh, unlimitedfunds.com. If you're interested in talking to us about the product, interested in investing, definitely uh, sign up there. Let us know. Email us at info at unlimitedfunds.com and, uh, and sign up for our blog where we talk about macro and portfolio construction and, uh, and what sort of insights we can draw from hedge funds. I'll tell you this. Hedge funds were underweight duration coming into today and nailed this move, uh, which is pretty, uh, pretty exciting to see. So uh, if you want to learn more, definitely check that out. Definitely check that out, guys. Thank you again for coming, Bob, as always. Last Bear, anything new you got to plug? Any final comments on the discussion? Um, no, just thanks for having me. Um, I, I will be writing about a lot of these topics that we're talking about, sort of the economic picture, macro picture um, for my post coming out this week. Um, I put out a post every, every Friday morning. Um, some of them are free to everybody. Some of them are, are for subscribers. Um, but uh, if you like what I say, you can follow me on there um, or here on Twitter. So uh, thanks, guys. It's, it's always a pleasure to be on the panel. Always a pleasure to have every single one of you. And again, everybody listening, make sure you're checking these guys out. I know chances are most of you probably already follow them, but for those of you that don't, definitely do that. I'm not usually someone who's like, hey, everybody, follow everybody, because I know that that kind of gets old on FinTwit where everybody's like, follow Fridays. But for these guys, I mean, there's no excuse not to be. You're going to learn so much from them. As far as upcoming unusual whale spaces, nothing on the immediate horizon, but we might have a good old-fashioned powwow about activism in trading and being on top of who's on the board of stocks you're interested in. So be on the lookout on the Unusual Whales page for that. 
should be announced in the coming weeks. That'll be in July sometime, I believe. Thank you, everybody, for coming. And we'll just be on hold for a minute here until j Powell starts talking. Thanks again, everybody. <laughs>